All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Business Development Solution. I am very grateful and thankful and excited to have with us this evening a cohort of leadership from the Black Unity Movement. I'm going to begin by reading their bio so we know who we're talking to. Morgan, if you could give a little wave to the people for those that don't know you. Uh, Morgan Fresh Henley, he identifies as he, him, his, as black. He is into writing, dancing, producing, photography, videography, and designing. He is a cinema student at the University of Oregon. He has worked as a freelance photographer since November of 2018 working with Brixton International, Forever 21, Blueface, and the University of Arizona. His family was part of the civil rights movement during the 1960s in Birmingham, Alabama. He grew up listening to the stories of his family's fight against racial injustice and believes in fighting for what he believes in, uh, in the unity and the mission of the black unity. I'm sorry, I messed that up a little bit, why he's working with black unity is their mission, their sense of purpose, and fighting for civil rights. Uh, welcome, Morgan. We appreciate you being here this evening, sir. Uh, Taishan, if you could give us a little wave so people that don't know you, thank you. Taishan is 20 years old, pronouns he, him. His favorite colors are red and purple. Favorite hobbies are fashion, music, basketball, and photography. He's a full-time activist, full-time college basketball player, and full-time worker. He has always been passionate about fighting for civil rights and educating people. He and educating people. He loves to dress up and taking photos. His dream is to live in a world where everyone can determine their own destiny, no matter their skin color, gender, or sexuality. He identifies as an African American man. A welcome, Taishan. We thank you for being here, sir. And we have. Kenia, she's not in the photo right now, but she is listening on the phone. She will be joining us shortly. Pronouns are she and her. Her favorite colors are light pink and gold. Her favorite hobbies are singing, art, and playing basketball. She is a small business owner doing nails currently. She would love, she would love to be a celebrity nail tech someday. She is a mom of a three-year-old girl. She always has had a passion for human rights and takes pride in vocalizing her experiences as a black woman. She would like to go back to school for art and music and she identifies as a Jamaican American. And lastly, we have Martin. Martin, give us a little wave there. Thank you, sir. He, him, his favorite color is blue. His hobbies are painting, biking, music performance. He is an activist, artist, and illustrator from Southern California. He enjoys working in mental health and strives to one day be a mental health provider who runs his own program. Uh, gentlemen and Kania, I know you're listening. Did I say that right, Kania? Kania. Kania. Sorry, Kania. I'm gonna have to. I'm, I have a granddaughter named Anaya, so let me just remember Kania. So thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Kania, thank you. I know you're listening. Thank you all for being here. We greatly appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for the opportunity and availing yourselves to uh, the next couple of hours to have a conversation about each one of you, about your sense of purpose and mission with Black Unity. I know all of you have received the questions in advance, but before we get to the list of questions, and I, and I would like to get to them because all of the questions you have received have come from uh, community members, community leaders, and they would like to hear from all of you directly. And I want people to hear from, in your words, your voices, your stories. 
Uh, so with that said, let me just ask a preliminary question. Um, Martin, I guess I'll start with you and then we can move to the other two gentlemen if they want to uh, answer at all. Tell us a little bit about the mission of Black Unity Movement. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and talk a little bit about the uh, mission of uh, Black Unity. Uh, when we first got together as a group, uh, you know, we were just individuals who were going to protest, who uh, saw a need for, um, who saw a need for the community of color to really reclaim their voices, to really reclaim, you know, the identity uh, of this movement. Because one of the things that we know about Eugene and one of the things that we know about in Oregon is that there's not a lot of people of color up here in Oregon, and there's specifically not a lot of black people, African-Americans, you know, uh, Haitians, uh, Africans, Jamaicans up here who can really, uh, you know, find a way to uh, make their voice heard. And so as we were going to these protests, as we were, um, as we were learning about, um, you know, the way the community saw these things, we felt there was a need to, you know, uh, amplify these voices and make sure that they were able to be heard. Because one of the things that uh, we realize here in Oregon is it's very different from the rest of the country, you know. Uh, some people might call it, you know, a white utopia. Some people might call it, uh, a, you know, a little bit different. But the entire point of it is that we need to unify together and we need to make sure that all these, uh, that we're you know, raising the voices of all of these individuals because our target is to make sure that, um, you know, we're uh, addressing the police brutality, the stigmatization, the bias that they treat our communities of color. And, you know, we're creating that equitable change that we need in this community. Very good, thank you. Morgan, would you like to add anything to that, sir? You're on mute. I think Martin hit it uh, right on the head with exactly what we're trying to do with um, helping the community and really trying to um, prop up the uh, people of color in the area and let them know that they're not the only ones who are trying to make a difference. Very good, thank you. Tyshawn, would you like to add anything, sir? I think Martin hit it on the head. Very good. And is Kanaya still there? Can she hear? Kanaya, did you have anything you wanted to add? She's good. Okay, very good. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and dive into the questions. This is gonna be, it's gonna take the two hours to get through these. And I thank you all once again for being here. So these questions that have come in, they're not in any particular order. Uh, they are from community members and community leaders, residents of Springfield and Eugene. But before I begin, how many protests uh, has the Black Unity Movement led now in the Eugene area and the Springfield area? Uh, James? Um, honestly, I'm not, I don't think any of us are 100% sure how many protests we've led. Like we've led um, a very, like a large amount of protests. So. Um, and we've been protesting for a long while now as a group, so I'm not, I don't think any of us are 100% sure, like, even ballpark-wise, how many um, protests we've done, like, since the beginning as a group. Um, also, Kanaya, she, she requested to, uh, oh, there she is. Okay. okay, yeah. But yeah, I'm not, I don't think any of us are sure, um, speaking for a group, like, how many protests we've done. Martin? I can probably give a ballpark estimate of uh, combined protests and events 
we've probably led about you know, 15 or so uh, of these uh, protests uh, throughout the community. I know that there's been several here in Springfield and there's confusion as to who is leading all of them. Uh, there's a, there is a distinction. Uh, there's a distinction that when black unity leads a protest, it is uh, more uh, controlled, so to speak. It, there's not so much aggression. Uh, there's a more positive message. There's this ongoing connection or characteristic of the protests that your organization has led in Springfield, as opposed to some of the characteristics of some of the other led protests. And that's what's communicated about um, black unity leadership in regards to the protests that they lead. Did we lose, did we lose Kanaya? Looks like we lost her. All right, so I'm gonna just start with the questions here as, we, as, we, as they came in. So you've had, you led some protests, your organization has led protests, multiple protests as you've described probably all over the state and maybe some other places, I, I don't know. But let's talk about Springfield right now. Let's talk about some of the protests and post-protest effects. Can you describe, there she is, Kanaya, thank you. Can you describe the actions that the mayor and our city councilors have taken with you to date, uh, uh, to date to gain an understanding of your organization and its mission and the goals you desire to accomplish? Uh, I guess, Morgan, we'll start with you. I see you guys from left to right, so that's how I'll, I'll ask. I don't know, there's, there's some people in the community that uh, feel that, could you, uh, could you say the question one more time? Sorry. Yes. Yeah, no problem. Uh, can you describe the actions that the mayor and our city councilors have taken with you, your organization that is to date, to gain an understanding of your organization and its mission and the goals you desire to accomplish? Uh, yeah, there are some people in our community that, um, many feel are underrepresented and we think that many of the city leaders in Springfield are just waiting for activism to occur and it it sucks because there's a certain amount of people who just don't like we understand that when you just sit around and wait nothing ends up happening and when you don't put pressure on these um, community leaders to actually uh, try and accomplish anything and do something and move things forward, everything just stagnates. And there's a lot of people of color like myself personally who have lived in Springfield and have felt what it's like to live in somewhere and you not feel safe. And um, when the leaders don't reflect, like they, they say they want to help um, people feel safe and protect the people who live in the area and then they don't do, do anything or actually move any policies or laws forward to actually show that it's really disappointing because it feels like you're getting spit in the face. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Martin, did you want to add to that answer? So I really think that, um, you know, when we're, when we're looking at this question, we really have to look at how long, you know, black unity has uh, been as an established group, you know, as of, uh, as of this month, We've had, you know, two solid months of a uh, blend of protests and events that we put on um, through the city, uh, through the city of Eugene. One of those being uh, the Juneteenth event that happened um, 
uh, back on June 19th. Now, one of the things that we noticed um, uh, at this Juneteenth event is that, you know, the mayor of Eugene actually took the time to, you know, calm down, uh, you know, look around, you know, uh, understand, you know, what, what uh, the focus that we we're trying to create at this event and really, you know, uh, take that time afterwards to connect with the community. You know, in Springfield, we've posted uh, about four, uh, four of these blended events. Uh, three of them are protests and one was a public forum. But one of, the, one of the things that I think is really telling of the community is the fact that aside from yourself, none of the public officials there have actually reached out to us. None of them have actually tried to understand our mission. None of them have really tried to understand the goals that we accomplish. It, and as a matter of fact, you know, when we go into Springfield, you know, where a lot of, uh, a lot of our members and a lot of, you know, people of color uh, in this community live, one of the big things that we learn is that when these people of color try to create a voice, it's shut down by the large, you know, by the large majority of the community, whether, you know, they are all lives matter or whether they're extremists within the all lives matter camp, they shut down those voices. And so until, uh, until the violence that occurred at the uh, Thurston, uh, Thurston protest, you know, from the police and from the uh, uh, counter protesters who showed up, and the uh, pressure that was placed on the mayor directly after that event, she never made a statement. So there's not, there's not really a way for us to answer that question because there was never a dialogue to begin with. Before I go to you, Tyshawn, I just want to say that you did you receive the email that the Springfield City Club wants to meet with your organization and have you yes. as a program? So doors yes. are starting to open. So uh, this is a really good good time and this dialogue is going to be really useful. So thank you. Tyshawn, did you want to add to anything that's been said, sir? Yeah, so like Martin said, like there hasn't been any dialogue between us and the, the city council or mayor from Spring uh, from Springfield. And here the problem with that is we've been to Springfield um, um, a couple of times. And so uh, we know for sure that she knows that we've been there and that we're trying to make a statement there. And the, the main problem is um, people are getting upset about like the violence, uh, the violent protests and stuff like that. But um, without that happening, um, like without me, like without us uh, going to uh, Thurston, like no one would have took notice in what we were trying to do. And so it's it's super annoying to us, like a peaceful protesting group, that violence has to occur just for our message to um to to get out to to the mayor and to the city council. Like that's super frustrating because we want them to hear us. They don't hear us when we're peaceful protesting, but they hear the people that are breaking stuff and they're frustrated at that. And we're trying to make these changes and um, we're trying to put pressure on the city council, the police and the mayor to make these changes without things getting violent. Because if these changes are happening, these groups won't have to go out there and break stuff. So that that's the, uh, the main problem with um, us not having dialogue with the mayor. If she and she knows our message and the city council knows our message and the people that live there know our message, um, it'll be it'll be a lot easier and fast tracked and things won't get broken and there won't be um, so much crazy stuff happening if if she just stepped up and wanted to have this dialogue. And it's sad that it took all this just for that to happen. Very good, thank you. Uh, good to see you again, Kanaya. Glad you could get logged back on. Is there anything you'd like to add? I didn't hear anything because of the fact that my phone has been okay. completely out. 
I'll, I'll ask you the question again, okay? So the, the same question that your uh, cohorts have answered, can you describe the actions that the mayor and speaking of Springfield and our city council have taken with you to date to gain an understanding of your organization and its mission and the goals you desire to accomplish? So you're asking me what the mayor has done to understand us better? Or any of the city leadership, yes ma'am. I don't think the mayor in Springfield has done much to understand us by my, by what I've heard. It doesn't seem like, I don't know. I feel like the Eugene mayor has done a lot more to understand us. And that, that really shows to be honest, because um, in this time we need people to be listening and people that aren't listening aren't helpful. Okay. Very good. Now um, we have a lot of questions here, but I want to go back to something Tyshawn said, because I, I want to make sure that the community hears your story in your voice and in your words, because that's really the most important thing. And so Tyshawn mentioned about the protests that got violent in Thurston, that until that conflict, until that moment of difficulty, he felt like maybe the organization hadn't been heard that your objectives weren't taken seriously, or maybe you weren't taken seriously as, as BIPOC leaders. And that night, speaking of that particular protest, was it, there's so much confusion about who led it and what organizations were, were in charge or responsible. Can, I'll, uh, can I, you're right here still in front of me. I'll, I'll start with you. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? This is on the Wednesday night Thursday protest? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I didn't, I, I tried to explain as much as I could that this was black unity that was leading that protest and that black unity is extremely peaceful. We have never broken anything. We've never looted. We do not condone that behavior. I even told it to the counter protesters the night before when the police pulled me over and I explained to the neighbors and everything that we are peaceful. We're a peaceful group. And I don't know how many times I to say that for people that to actually like listen and think like we actually are peaceful. I think that we have a good track record though of showing that. And I think despite what happened that, that night, we tried to keep the peace as much as we could. We were unarmed and we used our voices to be heard instead of threatening other people. Well, I explained to your, uh, the rest of your leadership cohorts here that one of the characteristics of black unity within the city is that when black unity leads a march, it's disrupt, not destroy. It does, it lacks the, or it doesn't have the aggressive characteristics. And so that arena of, of how you lead has, it has differentiated your efforts and your energy from some of the other things that have transpired here. And personally, you know, for clarity's sake, I don't really, I'm really grateful for this conversation because I don't know the difference between Black Unity, Black Lives Matter, Black Liberation. There's there's a lot of different groups that we hope to have conversations with. So I appreciate that. Okay, Martin, you, sir, you want to go? Yeah. So you know, speaking speaking to the you know who was leading the protest, it was a Black Unity led protest. And I think one of the things that people don't real you know people in that community don't realize is that when we're planning a protest we aren't planning a protest the night before going out and, you know, just uh, jumping in, hoping that people are uh, going to follow the message of disrupt, not destroy. You know, these protests 
these this protest planning takes a couple of weeks actually you know, uh, where we're setting these routes, where we're, you know, talking to the community, where we're uh, trying to see where these areas of violence will most likely occur so that we can actually avoid those areas and keep all of the uh, protesters safe. Because one of the pinnacle uh, achievements of our protests in the past is that they're always educational. You're always learning something from the protests that you didn't know about the community. You're learning something that you didn't know about uh you know, the black lives, you're learning something you didn't know that uh, about black voices. And when we're, you know, trying to differentiate ourselves from these different groups, it's just like you said, different groups have different tactics. And our group is all about that educational protest piece. The only way you can create a space to uh, have education is to have peace. And so on that uh, Wednesday night, uh, Thurston protests, uh, you know, we had uh, started planning that protest uh, at the beginning of the week. Um, when we were looking around that community, when we were getting, when we were receiving information from, you know, the folks that live there, uh, we had learned that, you know, there were going to be a, a large amount of counter protesters there. So, in order to make sure that, you know, that uh, didn't end up in violence, we uh, ended up changing the route of our protest so that we can continue that peaceful message and make sure that it happened. But you know, the reason why it ended in violence is because we were met by a group of officers who didn't want to listen, who didn't want to be educated, who didn't, who wanted to assert a certain level of dominance in their community that really didn't need to happen. They didn't know our route. They didn't know any of these things. And so that's why that protest actually ended in violence is because, you know, those police, uh, you know, made an assumption, you know, they, they created this uh, area, they created this air of bias within that community, that black unity was coming to be violent. And so we weren't able to, you know, create that, um, create that uh, space for educational protests like we usually do because there was no dialogue in the moment. There wasn't dialogue on their side. And then when they forced us away after, you know, beating us, there was no dialogue between the um, All Lives uh, Matter group. It was an assumption that we came there to loot, we came there to be violent. But like I said, we've had four events in uh, the Thurston protests. Of those four events, we've never been violent. We've always been educational. We've always been trying to, you know, uh, push a peaceful message. So I think that's the big distinction with our group is that, you know, so many people know that. Okay, very good. Tyshawn, you got your hand up. You want to say something, sir? Yeah, so to, just to add on top of that, I did have dialogue um, with those uh, protesters at the very beginning, like when we first got there. And the thing that was so um, crazy to me is that I asked them if they knew who we were. They said yes. I asked them if they knew what our message was. They also said yes. And I asked them if they knew we weren't violent. They also said yes. So the thing was, it seems like they knew who we were, but they didn't care about that. And they just put every Black Lives Matter movement in one category, because as soon as people hear black, they automatically are getting triggered. And that's the, that's the big thing with them, because they always preach, we're not against you guys, we're not against you guys, but they come out um, with us with guns and like the big the big thing that is also very annoying is that no one's house no one's car has been damaged throughout these protests uh in eugene or springfield or wherever you know what i mean that hasn't happened it's only been like businesses so like for the fact that they think that we're gonna come and hit their homes and their cars and all that stuff is ridiculous because that's never even happened um so that's that's also super frustrating um with that and like for the distinction of groups people know um 
the people that go out and, uh, and break stuff and the people that don't go out and break stuff. Those people cover their identities. People know Black Unity doesn't cover their identities. Like, um, just that simple. We put our lives on the line every day that, that we do go out there and protest without covering our identities. And that's because we know that we're a peaceful group um, and that we know, like, the thing is, without that without that stuff happening like i said earlier with like the stuff getting broken and stuff like that those people would never have came out of their homes like those people and like the the thing that's frustrating is that they come at us with guns and they come at us with mace and with and with machetes and stuff like that knowing we're peaceful but then there's people that are down that are that go downtown and are actually breaking stuff and they're nowhere to be seen around those people they're not there to defend their town or whatever they say to us like when the people are actually breaking stuff but when it's a peaceful protest and they know they have the advantage to to go mess with some people who aren't armed that aren't actually trying to fight them that aren't actually trying to break things they're they take advantage of that and that's what it's, and they know that those people know who black unity uh, is and they know what our message is. And um, at the end of the day, we're going to keep on trying to educate um, and keep on doing what we do, but those people know, and um, they need to be held accountable. Thank you. Now a comment was made, Martin mentioned going out and talking to the community and I want to just make sure I have that in proper context. So community meeting those that march or the actual community that you're going to go in you're you're planning on going into because it's not like you have some preliminary conversations with some people and in that in those preliminary conversations have you considered uh, dialoguing with the any police force where you go in this particular case spd is that door open to discuss uh how we can support your you know how how the the march can be supported or how we can safeguard everyone. And so uh, Tyson, I'll come back to you. I want to hear Morgan real quick. I'll come back to you, sir. All right. So I think we need to make one thing absolutely clear here. We are a peaceful protest group. Our message is peaceful and our actions are peaceful. The best way to be able to do that and the best way to show that we can create a system of change isn't by going through the police. It's by directly interacting with the community members that live in that community. Okay. And so when we're talking to these community members, uh, you know, on the one hand, we're talking to these community members who support us. We're talking to them, you know, because they've lived in this environment. They've lived in this uh, in the city. They know they know how um, their neighbors are going to react. And so we want we want to hear their opinion, and we appreciate the fact that they feel comfortable enough to tell us, you know, how it is in that area. On the other hand, you know, just like uh, just like um, we uh, talk to them. We also want to make sure that we're, uh, you know, keeping a lookout uh, for these counter protesters, keeping a lookout for this. And so, you know, one of the uh, big things that sparked that uh, that sparked this uh, protest was that video that surfaced of, you know, the um, individual putting up uh, the skeleton on a noose, you know, because I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, um, that their subconscious actions can create bias. And it takes a lot of education. It takes a lot of re-examination to be able to understand that. And you know that's why Black Unity was coming to do what we were going to do. But one of the things that we learned about this person was that you know they were a war veteran. They they have PTSD. They have things that you know that are going on with them that um, can create a situation where when they're surrounded by a community of people, they might perceive that as being unsafe. And so we did try to reach out to this person. We tried to reach out and, you know, explain to this person that, hey, 
we understand where you're coming from. And because, you know, you took the, because the community members around you took the opportunity to tell that to us, we want to make absolutely clear that we're not going to come to your house. We're not going to come down your street. We're not going to make the focus on you because the issue was never with that individual in the first place. It's the, uh, it's the climate that uh, enables individuals to create bias, you know, to have that kind of bias. And that's really what we're trying to focus on. Within that community, you know, within the Thurston community, it's not individuals, you know, it is the environment itself that we are trying to, we're trying to change. Right. And that environment is what needs to be changed. And, you know, in order to do that, the only way you can do that is to talk to the community. When it comes to the, you know, when it comes to any police force that uh, is in existence right now, that, um, you know, receives money from the city, that receives money from the government, that's a part of this system, we're trying to change the system. We're trying to make sure that you know, uh, you know, black men and black women aren't brutalized by the system. We're trying to make sure that there are, you know, that there's equity in the system. And in order to do that, we have to show how the system reacts when uh, people challenge for peaceful change. And in order to do that, you can't communicate with the police. And that's, you know, one of the core reasons why our message is ACAB. We understand that there are individuals, you know, within the force that really want to create change, that really want to be out there and support the community. But we also understand that the system that they're in doesn't allow them to do that. And because the system that they're in doesn't allow them to do that, we will not uh, communicate with the police. We will not, you know, talk to them because at the end of the day, it's our constitutional right to go out and peacefully protest. Very and good. that's what needs to be respected. Very good. Thank you. Morgan, I know you want to say something. I'll come back to you, Tyshawn. Um, another big reason we don't want to work with the police is because there's a lot of people within our community who have been victimized by the police. And we don't want to um, put them in a situation where they are fighting between standing up for what they believe in, but then also having to work with these people that have victimized them. And it's in a situation that we don't want to put anyone in our community in a situation where they don't feel safe within one of our events. We want to make sure that people who are with us feel safe and feel a sense of loving community. And we've, and we've noticed when, when the cops have shown up, when we've asked them not to, when cops have showed up, and even when we said, please, we, we're fine. We understand what we're doing. We have people here to make sure people are safe. We have a security team to make sure people are being secure and people are safe. We have medics to make sure people, if people get injured, we have someone to take care of that. They still show up and it causes, and it causes people to, um, get a bit scared and they, it causes people to feel like their violence violence might happen and we've noticed that um, when we, when things have gotten violent at our events it's because the police have been present and it more than it has happened more than once where situations where the police have um, shown up and things have gotten violent because the police have shown up and we don't want anyone to feel um, that we're going to be working with a group that's going to cause them to be um, be hurt and most, and I've, I personally have not had many, um, many good experiences with police officers. And I definitely don't feel safe around police officers most of the time because of the, because of the way they've treated um, me personally and um, members of my family and friends. And I know there's other people in the community who feel the same way and it makes them feel more comfortable knowing that we don't work with the police and we can still have these very safe, very successful and educational events while um, working outside of the um, quote-unquote lines. Very good, thank you. Uh, Tashawn, you wanna add something, sir? Yeah, so just like off of like what Martin was saying, um, oh, 
the one problem with working with the police is that, um, and also this is also another problem with just the police in general, is that they're humans at the end of the day. So like there's a group of people who are working to abolish them. Like mentally, you're not going to want to help those people. And that is something that you can't help being a human being. You're not going to want to help people that are working against you. And the problem with this is like uh, what happened in Thurston with these counter protesters is the police didn't do their job. And no matter if we're trying to abolish them or not, they still have a job to do, and that's to protect and serve. And that's a reason why we want to abolish them, because they're not doing that. They didn't protect the people that were unarmed, that weren't going there to break stuff, that weren't going there for confrontation. They were protecting the people that came there for confrontation, that came there with guns, that came there with pepper spray and mace, and came there to hurt people. That's the problem with the police, is they're not doing their job. And, and another thing um, about this is history truly does repeat itself. When has changes occurred? It's when people have been beaten, like Rodney King. It's like when uh, when uh, Martin Luther King was murdered. It's with the sit-ins, when people were beaten. Like, that's when change finally starts to happen. It's just like when I got dragged by the police, that's when that's when people started to wake up in Springfield. That's when the mayor started to want to take action. And, like, that's a problem. That's why these things happen uh, in the community. And um, another thing with the cops is, like, when they do show up, they don't do their job. Like, it's just like when Isaiah got hit by a car. The, the police showed up and they didn't do anything. All they did was question us for two hours, not helping at all. We, we're the one that found out where the guy lived. We're the one that found his car. We're the one that found his apartment. Like we're the one that went and knocked on his door and made him come outside. The police didn't do anything. And that's majority of the time is the police aren't crime stoppers. They get there after the crime has already happened. And that's why we need to abolish them because that system doesn't work and it doesn't help anybody. Like they, they are not, um, they're not doing their job anymore because they're mad that that people are trying to abolish them and that's one thing that we can't help as humans like I said like it's hard for to be a policeman like that that is hard to have to protect and serve people who want to abolish you and get rid of you like that's hard and that's the problem with being a police officer is that um, like mentally um, there's a lot of things that as a human you really can't do like and so that's the problem why we can't work with the police officers because we know at the end of the day, no police officer is ever going to want to abolish the police. Um, and that's our message. We want to abolish the police. So um, with that being said, that's why we can't work with them. Good. Uh, and I have a sub question, but let me see. Can, can, can I add something you'd like to add? Yeah, they practically said it all perfectly, to be honest. That's exactly how I was feeling. One thing that I wanted to add, though, is that when we do, if we ever do speak to the police, they have a completely different narrative when they're speaking to us versus speaking to counter protesters. So it's hard to trust somebody that can look us in the face and be like, yeah, all lives matter, including black ones. And then they go across the line and they say, oh yeah, no, like forget them. They don't matter. We, we got you guys. We don't have them. So when it comes to speaking to them, it kind of sounds counterproductive because of the fact that I feel like it's a whole lie. Like, like Tyshawn said, they're not for us. So there's no point of them to be nice to us, you know? Okay, thank you. Martin, you wanna add something really quick? Yeah, and this will be my last comment. It actually bounces directly off of uh, what Kanaya was saying. You know, when you know when our group didn't start off as, you know, uh, ACAB, we didn't start off wanting to abolish the police. We actually started off with police reform. But that second protest in Thurston really opened our eyes to, you know, what was truly going on in the system. Uh, I, I mean, for some of us in the group, myself personally, I've never had good interactions with the police, despite, you know, being a good citizen, despite doing that, I've only ever been harassed. So, you know, I've personally always been for uh, police abolishment. But 
that doesn't mean that I'm not going to try and, you know, create dialogue with an officer to see, to understand their mindset. And so, you know, in that, you know, in those first couple of protests in Thurston, you know, uh, where, where we were uh, met with these barricades and their violence didn't actually occur, I did take the uh, time to talk to uh, one of these officers to understand, you know, his mindset, understand where he's coming from. And what he told me was, if it was just you and me, we, we could go to, we could go into our, the precinct, we could pray, we can uh, have this dialogue, and we can talk about the issues. But when I'm out here, when I'm out here in the community, and I'm looking at your group, I see criminals. I see, I see people who are shouting ACAP, who are shouting, I'd, uh, who are shouting, fuck the police, who are shouting these things. And how can I work with somebody like that? So when an officer physically says that, and you know, I don't know if that officer remembers that he said that, but when an officer says that, how can you, how can you work with the police at that point? How can you be about police reform when they're not even about it in their own hearts? So give me a definition. <clears throat> What's the difference ideology wise or philosophically between abolish the police and defund the police? What is the message behind each one of those terms and what's the, the, the message and objective of black unity is, is it abolish or is it defund or are they the same thing or not? So I can speak on that. So basically, this is the thing. So the, the big two differences is reform and abolish. Uh, defund goes into, um, because this process, like we can't just be like, okay, let's abolish the police and get rid of all protection without any plans or anywhere to put this money. Um, so it has to be, um, defund first. So defund, put more, uh, put more money towards things like cahoots and um, also other uh, other um, or organizations that are going to replace the police. Essentially, um, we have to come up with uh, these systems and these plans on how we can replace uh, re replace uh, the police and have um, security in um, our cities. So. Um, defunding the police goes hand in hand with abolishment. We have to defund them first, uh, dismantle, and then uh, eventually abolish them. So um, what will happen is that money will go to um, different organizations instead of the police having money for tear gas and having money for militarized weapons and tanks and uh, such things like that. So that's uh, what uh, defund and abolish essentially means. So, okay, uh, Martin. Yeah. You know, and to bounce off of you know what Ty what Tyshawn is saying, you know, there's re there really is two aspects to you know uh, to abolishment with uh with the defund and with the uh, with abolishing. You know, when it comes to defunding and when it comes to that reallocation of funds in the community, one of the things that I think Eugene and uh, Oregon has kind of recognized and is kind of ahead of the game when it compares when we compare to the rest of the country is that. Mental health is important. Your mental state is important. Your health care is important. And so a lot of what Oregon has been doing over the past, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years is really trying to find a way to create, you know, to create space to uh, put more funding into these, uh, put more funding into these uh, uh, solutions, put more funding into these preventative measures to stop an individual from, you know, uh, getting into a space where they feel like the only way to survive is to commit a crime or getting to a space where they feel like the only action they can take to get reconciliation is to hurt somebody. And, you know, so Oregon is really putting a lot of effort into that. You can see that in, uh, here in Eugene through uh, Looking Glass, Kids First, uh, uh, sponsors, you know, all of these different, all of these different community organizations that have kind of popped up in addition to CAHOOTS. 
when it comes to that abolishment piece, one thing that I think people aren't understanding is that the system that uh, gives police the power to do what they do is legislative. You know, it's written into law. Just like, um, just like uh, what happened in Thurston that uh, third night. You know, when the police set up a barricade, this is uh, actually written into. This is in city code, and this is in you know Oregon law. When police set up a barricade and they declare uh, they declare something unlawful, they're required by law to use force if people don't disperse. That's that's actually a requirement, and so that gives them that power to go in. And to you know, be a little bit to be a little bit more rough, and to be shielded behind that system of protection. Whereas if a civilian did that, we know that they'd be behind bars. We know that they'd have restitution. We know that they need to uh, go into these programs to ensure that they uh, don't go back into criminal recidivism, so that they don't end up back into the system. But that's not the same, you know, in, you know, in the police force. That's not the same in their environment. And so that abolishment piece means that we you know means that we have to tear that entire system down in order to build it up to make it a better system in order to make sure that you know these mental health facilities that have been popping up are included in legislation as well in order to make sure that you know everything that Oregon's been doing to create these preventative stock gaps are in that system as well because right now when you're looking at police reform and police reform has been something that you know people have tried for hundreds of years you can only ever chip away at the system piece by piece. People still die. People still are incarcerated uh, for life. People are still stuck in the system. Mm -hmm. It took this. It took all the way to this year for uh, Oregon to uh, finally um, to finally uh, put into legislation and uh, vote into act the um, the uh, law that makes it uh, that makes it. Uh, what am I trying to say? That makes it. Um, impossible for a jury to convict somebody with a with a mixed trial you know if uh, not every if it's not a unanimous decision we know that that person is not going to be incarcerated anymore and that's a good thing but that should have already been in place we shouldn't have had to wait a hundred additional years for that to happen and that's where that abolishment piece comes from you know it creates it creates an opportunity for us to create these changes in a more quick environment, you know, to build up a new protection system in a quicker environment rather than chip away at the system piece by piece by piece. Well, that's, that's very uh, helpful, very, very useful uh, regard the information and philosophically. Uh, you know, I met you and Kanaya uh, last weekend and I told several people that I was very impressed with the both of you. I found you both to be very uh, articulate, intelligent, well-spoken, you had a sense of mission and purpose about who you are and what you're doing and with your intentions uh, regarding black unity. And uh, so hearing this explanation regarding defunding and then abolishment, we're talking about the complete cultural infrastructure, if you will, of how, uh, the, how the oppression of the system, the setup of the oppression of the system. So, in the chance, right, there's a lot of comments on here in the questions that all of you have. In the chance, ACAB, all cops are bastards, fuck the police, all those. What I, I, I'm listening to you, and for the, I, I'm catching this. What you're saying is to the system itself, the, the how it is set up. That's what you're chanting about. Is, is that a correct assumption? Okay, very good. 
All right, I'd like to move on a little bit. That was really enlightening, and I really appreciate that. And I think a lot of people who are going to be listening to this are going to hear this, uh, these, distinction, these distinctions and come to a better place of, okay, now we know what is on their heart and their mind and what they're really trying to communicate. Let me move on to another question. What are your thoughts about city leadership uh, acknowledging and assuming their personal role and responsibility for dismantling the institutional racism that exists in the light of the protest occurring in Springfield? Uh, Morgan, I'll start with you. You're on my left. You're the first person I see. And then I'll just go down the line. There's a, I don't know, there's, there's not a lot of leaders that I've gotten to speak, speak with personally. Um, Martin's gotten to speak with many more leaders than I have uh, just because of um, my work schedule and stuff like that. But from the leaders that I've gotten to meet with, um, which have been very few because there haven't been as many leaders as I would have hoped coming, to, coming forward to try and really work with us and try to help understand what we're really trying to do. And it has been very difficult for, and very frustrating for me personally, because it seems like we just go in circles a lot of the times. And we have meetings, at, we go to these council meetings and we see people fall asleep during council meetings, which is very frustrating. Um, it happened and it's just like, why, why are you even, wanting to be a council person if you're not going to actually do your job and represent the people from your district and work to actually prop up the community and help the people in your in your um ward or i don't know i for, i don't know what they're called here i just moved here but um with the area that you um that your district um to actually feel safe and hear and hear their voices because i've I've talked to many other people who say that they talk to their representative and they don't ever feel like they're ever really heard. And so as Black Unity, we're really trying to help bridge that gap and and try and get, get the, make sure that the community voice is actually being heard and we can actually get things done to actually that are, that are really plaguing certain districts across the, uh, not in just in Springfield, but also Eugene and Thurston and all the, the areas surrounding the area. Very good. Now, Kanaya, have you had the opportunity to speak with any of the leadership in Springfield and address some of the issues that are important to you? I personally have not. Um, yeah, I haven't talked to anyone in Springfield. Eugene, though. If you could have a conversation with any of them, what, what are a couple of things you'd like, questions you'd like to ask or issues you'd like to bring up? If I was to speak to anybody at Springfield, especially someone that holds any power, I'd want to know how they've gone so long without protecting people of color. That's one thing that I think it's crazy that we all thought about it and it's taken this long for people to wake up and see that Thurston and Springfield has been so blatantly racist. It's not comfortable for kids growing up there. I played basketball. I would go have games there. It would just be a casualty thing. Like just casually people would say the N-word. They would say things about Mexican people. It, it was, it's disgusting. So I want to know why is it now that Black people are speaking up that you want to listen to us? Why couldn't you have done that and seen that through your own eyes? Like I'm just confused on 
what's taken so long and how do how do they expect to help us now you know what do they expect to do to keep us safe because I don't even want to drive in Springfield anymore I don't want to go anywhere I want to cancel every appointment that I have in Springfield because it feels like a danger zone and that's not okay so I would ask them what are they going to do for us thank you Tayshawn so like basically off of what Kanaya is saying um the big thing to ask them um, for sure is um, why is it when people are actually starting to physically get hurt uh, is when they want to step up and that's the problem is history really does repeat itself like I said earlier like um, no changes actually start getting made until the whole nation is outraged about the things that are happening and it took um, George Floyd to, to be killed for that to happen and that's George Floyd wasn't the first George Floyd you know what I mean so it's like it's not like this stuff hasn't been happening and um, the, the thing um, that I think is uh, what's happening in Springfield Thurston area is that it's finally starting to affect them. That's the thing. Uh, people don't make any moves until it starts to affect them. Um, their lives were regular. There was no one protesting in Springfield. There was no one protesting in Thurston. Um, you know, they got to get up and get their coffee every day like they do and go to work and come back home and their lives have never been affected by this. You know what I mean? Because they're not black. They don't have to go through these struggles that we have to go through daily. And now that we came there, and told them, hey, this is real. This happens everywhere. Um, that's that's a problem that you guys aren't realizing that. Um, now people are starting to wake up and now the mayor is starting to realize that, oh, this is happening in my town too. I thought this was just happening in Eugene or maybe this was just happening in Minnesota. Like this is an international movement and um, everywhere, like everywhere needs to understand that. And Springfield needs to understand that um, we're coming there because those are the people that are um, not understanding us the most. And, um, like those people need to be educated the most. They need to hear our message more than anybody because they're living in this bubble that they think racism doesn't exist. They think black people aren't being oppressed. They think white privilege is not real. And that goes for the mayor as well. And that goes for the city council as well. They think that this stuff doesn't exist because it doesn't affect them. And now um, Black Lives Matter being so big um, internationally, um, it's, it's a touchy subject. Now you have to do something. Now, if you don't do something, um, you will be canceled. And so now it's like, uh, it's it's annoying that we have to do it this way, but at least it's getting done in my eyes. Very good. Can I? So also one question that I want to ask. So I just expressed to you guys that I'm scared to go in Springfield as a Eugenian, as somebody that lives and resides in Eugene. What are you going to do for the BIPOC people that live in Springfield, Thurston area that want to move out of their homes? They have people driving past their homes slowly. They have people harassing them. They hear the conversations from their backyard about how they wish that these protesters would die. And how do you expect to protect those people? And where do you send them when the police is working with the same folks that aren't protecting us? Like, how how do you how do you choose to deal with that? Thank you, Martin. So real quick before um, before I uh, answer uh, and add on to you know what my colleagues are saying, uh, I would like you to ask your question one more time because I feel like there's uh, multiple aspects of that question that I need to address, and I just want to make sure that I heard everything that you asked correctly. Well, initially it started with Kanaya regarding if you had a chance to speak with city leadership the mayor, city council, what would you say to them? What would be your message? What, what do you want them to hear from you? Okay. Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the things that uh, these uh, counselors who were, uh, you know, uh, voted into office, you know, these uh, folks uh, 
who live up in this area don't really realize is uh, um, that while we can say Springfield and Eugene are two different places, those two, uh, the two cities are very interconnected. You know, we have to travel to Springfield for certain things, just like Springfield uh, citizens need to travel to Eugene for certain things. You know, and on top of that, one of the things that, you know, a lot of uh, folks who uh, are growing up here now don't really realize is that uh, Oregon itself was a state that was built with the intent to be a white utopia. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, knowing that, knowing the history and understanding that, you know, in 60s and the 70s and, the, uh, you know, early 80s, even parts of the 90s, uh, you know, this, this town was a, uh, it was a sunset town. If you are a person of color, specifically if you were a black person, you weren't allowed to live in this town. You know, you weren't, you, uh, at sundown, you had to leave. This was in Eugene and it was definitely in Springfield. Now, although legislation has passed to outlaw, you know, sunset towns, the people are still alive. It's not like there was, it's not like an entire generation was skipped. These, these are the people who have become these city leaders. These are the people who have become, you know, um, people in these prominent positions in, uh, in uh, Springfield, in Eugene. And so, you know, when we're focused specifically on the Springfield lens and, you know, I'm meeting these leaders, before I can have a discussion with them about what needs to change, you know, uh, in this community to help, uh, to help these people of color and to help uh, Black lives in this Black Lives Matter movement, they ha I have to ask them, can you reflect on yourself and can you ask yourself for these, for the past 20, 30 years that, um, you know, progressiveness has existed in Oregon, have I been a progressive? Have I been a champion for change? Have I been somebody who wants to listen to these voices? Because in Eugene, you know, we've had the opportunity to meet with a lot of the city leaders. We had a lot of uh, opportunity to meet with a lot of these officials and they've had that, they've had that internal struggle. They've had that debate with themselves. So they're able to come with us unbiased with open eyes and open hearts to be able to attack this issue. But there's still, uh, there's still councilmen and councilwomen who are on the council who refuse to have that uh, internal dialogue with themselves. Knowing that there's, you know, there's still one or two of them in, um, in Eugene, and like I said, these two communities are interconnected, you go over to Springfield where you know, everybody in Eugene says, don't go to Springfield, don't go to Springfield, don't go to Springfield, rather than having two counselors on the community, you know, um, in these uh, positions of power who uh, do this, you have seven counselors in a position of power who haven't had this internal um, debate on themselves. You have a mayor who hasn't had this internal debate to understand themselves. You have an entire police force that hasn't had this conversation. So before we can have that chance to talk to them, they need to look in the mirror and they have to talk to themselves. Thank you. Morgan, you had some comments, sir? You're on mute, unmute yourself. Oh, Martin hit right on the head. I don't need to say anything else. Okay, very good. I want to read a, a, a observation. This is on page three of the questions that you sent at the very top. It says, from one of the residents of the city, I was expecting after, after this for the visit to the mayor's house to be really dangerous. But I heard their message and their request, and I thought, those are very reasonable, and I would fully support all of them. But when I hear cops are bastards, read graffiti that cops should die, protesters saying cops should be raped, it sends a different message. Uh, and I, I don't want to address that. I want you guys to address the passion of what's going on 
and maybe some of that conflict and how to straighten some of that out because there is that sense of confusion that comes when tensions are high and I'm listening to all of you and I think there's a very reasonable uh, explanations and answers that you can give to maybe ease some of those conflicts. So uh, Martin, I'll start with you. So I think one thing needs to be said before we even have this conversation is that although there are, you know, there may have been people who are saying, you know, these, you know, police officers need to be raped, this, you know, X, Y, and Z, everybody's human. And Black Unity as an organization does not condone any individual, uh, anyone saying that uh, somebody needs to be raped, anyone saying that uh, uh, these people need to have violence inflicted on them. We do not condone that. We are a peaceful protest, and although that you know, although that may have happened at um, the event after uh, the police, you know, the police and the Proud Boys, you know, brutalizes something that um, I think the the community needs to realize is that everyone comes from a different part of this community. You know, there are some people who come down from Portland, who uh, Portland has a different atmosphere from uh, Eugene. There are some folks who come from Coos Bay. Coos Bay has a different atmosphere from Eugene. Uh, Eugene has a different atmosphere from Springfield, you know, and it's like knowing all of these things and knowing where everyone's coming from. I think one of the things that uh, the community members need to realize is that on top of us, you know, wanting to bridge things together and be a part of this larger movement, people are also bringing in their personal experiences. You know, there have been members in this community who have been raped by police officers and who want, you know, who passionately want them to understand, you know, what that comes from. And, uh, you know, their mental health has taken a toll from, you know, what what has happened due to this. And, you know, knowing that their mental health has taken a toll, the only thing that they can really help to say is, I hope you get raped. And like I said, while Black Unity does not condone that, or we don't condone any, you know, any form of violence, any kind of threat or anything like that towards officers, they have to understand that when you've done this to the community, when you've done this to individuals, and you put them in a corner, you put them in a place where they're not allowed to express themselves, where they're not allowed to, you know, heal and really, uh, you know, move on from what had happened. That's the only way they're going to respond. It's a cycle. Okay, thank you. Kanaya, you want to say something, ma'am? I'm, I'm agreeing with him. I'm like, he said it perfectly. It's like, after, after people have been so hurt, especially a woman was the one to say that, right? So when you see a male Apparently that night in Springfield, too, a male officer frisked a woman a little too much. And that is a common thing for us. So we're black for one, and for two, we're women. So that's two things that is already, like, oppressing us. So when people say stuff like that, to be honest, I'm really, I, it sucks to hear, but it's the reality of life. It's like, I wish that this would happen to you, even though that's not how I personally and BU personally deals with things. I'm not mad at her, to be honest. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. Morgan? Unmute yourself. It's a natural reaction to um, having all this pent up energy over, over time. And it's and the um, police departments in both Eugene and Springfield haven't done anything to address the problems within either of those two organizations. And so we give a lot of people have just had to sit there and fester and watch as these people um, don't even get punished. They just go along living their days like they haven't done anything wrong. And it's really for a lot of people, especially when you have um, um, when you have mental health issues, it's physical spit in the face. 
when you are or are you just victimized and not only are you victimized because of your skin color or your sexual orientation but then also you know on top of that you also have mental mental health problems and so then it also compounds and over time it's all you can say to a point is you yell out what what you can only hope is to hit someone to listen and when i when i see those things and i hear those things it's, it's it makes me sad because I know that there's that someone someone's not saying that out of um, like pure anger. They're saying that more out of pain than anything. When those when those words are spray painted or you really are said when at our protests, it's because those people those words are coming from pain, not anger. It's because these people have been brutalized, victimized, and sexualized to a point where all they that's all they have to say because they're so entrenched in this pain that's been given that's been forced upon them. And it's really sad that this is a product that has been um, pushed out by EPD and SPD. Very good, thank you. I, I, go ahead, Martin, you want to add something real quick? Martin? So I wanted to um, also address the rest of the question because, you know, that was that was one aspect of the question that you asked. The, you know, the rest of the question kind of, you know, is a focus on, you know, when we're saying ACAB, when we're saying at the police, when we're saying that. Like I said, we're in educational protests. In order to understand our message, the only way you can really do that is to come out and actually listen to the educational portions of our uh, protests. And so when we're saying those things, it's a deliberate tactic. It's a tactic to make people come out of their homes because just like what you said, you know, with this person who asked this question, you know, it makes them start to think, it makes them wonder what's going on. And the best way to understand what's going on and why people are saying these things is to come out, you know, when we're, when we're paused on one of those street stops, when we're stopping in an area, when we have, you know, one of our uh, leaders speaking or a, a, member, a member from the community speaking. Because when we have that, uh, when we have those speaking portions of the protests, that's when we're explaining why. But the residents don't really come to the speaking portions of that protest. You know, they, they hear, they hear the F police, they hear that and they record all of that. But you know, their counter protesters, the people who they feel comfortable following at these events like to, you know, turn their cameras off when the educational piece is happening, when the why happens. And so you can't have, you can't have the what without the why. And that's really, you know, where we're at. Well, very good. And I just wanted to share with all of you as the leaders of the black unity, that there are people who are observing you and saying it is very reasonable. They are, they have reasonable requests. We want to support that request and want to support them. And then you're giving great explanations regarding the duality of the presentation of, of the intellectual component and the emotional pain component of it all. So I want to ask one more question about protests and then I want to move on to other things because there's really, really great questions on here. But this one has come up, came up significantly or multiple times, and I want people to hear from you. This is this is your story to tell, not not anyone else's. Does Black Unity believe that protests are peaceful when young children, the elderly, the mentally unstable, families, neighborhoods, and businesses are subject to late night screaming protesters shouting untruths and profanities like ACOB and the other things we've mentioned? What is the exact purpose of these protest tactics? And do you understand that they serve to incite and escalate anger and violence among your supporters and further alienate many other who would otherwise agree with the need for racial reform and justice are now just simply turned off? Okay, Kanaya, and then I'll come to you, Tasha. Okay, so 
I want to address this really quick. Um, so one thing that people have been saying, you know, is that they have their kids are sleeping. People, it's it's loud. It's noisy. It's obnoxious. One thing that they don't understand is we cannot sleep. Like the thing is, it doesn't stop at the end of the night. It doesn't stop for us. It's not something you can just turn off. We have dreams about this stuff. We wake up, we go outside, we're black, wherever we go, wherever we go, we're black. So going out in the street at night, when, when that's a, a really peaceful time and saying, Hey, I can't breathe. I can't sleep. This is, it's not over yet. It still keeps people involved and engaged. And, and that's what they need to be doing right now. They need to be just as startled and upset as we are. Cause that's the only way to make a change is, is don't be silent, get loud, get loud all the time until that, until we have justice, we need to be loud. So that's, that's my piece. Thank you. Tayshawn. Thank you. So for me, like, um, us being out there, like, I just feel like your sleep is not more important than black lives mattering. Like it's just off the rip. And like, if, um, us saying these things, like, is the reason that there is uh, room for these conversations to happen because uh, otherwise, like this is the thing about the protests. Um, protesting, we know is not gonna make the actual policy changes and stuff like that. But what it does is it shows people what we're out there for and it, uh, it keeps pressure on like the media and the police and the uh, city council and the government, like, and everyone. It keeps pressure on everyone. The whole world is protesting, it's keeping pressure on everyone. And so the point of protesting is to, um, for people uh, that otherwise wouldn't go on a website and look up why we're mad or look up our demands and look at stuff. That's the point of a protest. So the protests, um, us being out there and yelling and chanting and knocking our pants together and everything, it's to get you to come outside and listen to what we have to say because otherwise you would be in your house going about your regular life and just uh, making it seem like nothing is happening. But us going and making this noise it's not about disrupting your, your kid being asleep or um, or your uh, these older people and stuff like that. It's about to get you to come outside your house and, and, and figure out why we're so upset and figure out why we're so mad because we're past the point. We're past the point, like at the beginning of this movement, it was just like black people coming and speaking on why they were angry, like what are their stories and what's happened to them and stuff like that. And now we're past that point. You know what I mean? We've been protesting for like 70 days. Now we're at the point to where it's time to start teaching people why we're upset and teaching people why black lives should matter and teaching people why you need to abolish the cops and teaching people why these systems are uh, put in place are put in place to oppress people of color. Like the starting starts teaching people that people are past the point to where they want to come outside and listen to um, like black people yell and scream about why they're mad because people understand we're mad now. They know we're mad. Like, you know what I'm saying? Minnesota has been got burned down like uh, LA, like, like people know that we're mad. Now it's time to start telling these people, we're mad and how they can fix it and how they can help and how they can change help change these systems so that's what the protests if we stop the protests then it stops the pressure and it uh people aren't as involved because it's not directly affecting their lives very good thank you very detailed answer morgan i think it's also very important for those people who are asking these questions to also ask themselves would you be having a conversation with your children about social injustice and, and trying to let them know about what's going on in this country if, the, if, the, if we weren't having these protests in your neighborhood? Because I have, I've had conversations um, and listened to um, um, conversations with um, white people who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s asking them, having conversations about when they should talk to their children about 
um, social and social injustice situations. And for a lot of, and for a lot of um, my personal friends who are white, they, they hear about these conversations way too late in their life. And they feel bad for not understanding what, what, what we've been going through since, since birth. And um, for a lot of these parents, it should be a blessing to them. It's an eye-opening situation where now they, now they have an ability to have an open dialogue with their children and actually talk about these situations and able to bring their children out of their house and into the street to come and to march with us and learn from us and get educated. And we've had several situations. I think every time we have a protest, we have at least five people come out of their house and into the street to join us and march with us and learn with us, which is one of the greatest things I think about Black Unity as a group is that we actually can be physically be able to get people out of their house and into the street to come and learn from us because of the because when you see our protests and you watch us come by it's nothing but people a community of people who are smiling and happy to be there and happy to be fighting for what they believe in and are truly and truly 100 percent with with all good intention want to help change the community and are trying to fight for a better place thank you uh, martin uh, well first off i think uh Ty, um, Kanaya, and Morgan hit everything that I want to say about the um, about uh, the protest specifically on the head. You know, beautiful, beautiful job, y'all. Now, I think the thing that I want to address is the actual question itself. You know, when I, you know, me working in mental health and me kind of, you know, uh, having a deeper understanding of, you know, uh, the the question behind the question or the intent behind the question. You know, when I look at a question like this. And, you know, I read, you know, how they're, how they're stating things like, for example, you know, what is the exact purpose of this, uh, of these protest tactics? Do you understand that they serve to incite and escalate anger and violence among your supporters and further alienate from many who would otherwise agree with the need? A statement like that, what that person is really saying is that, or what that person really means is that I'm in a bubble and do you do you feel like you can come in and disrupt this bubble because within this bubble everything that I said in this uh, question is true my you know uh, where I live there are mentally unstable there's elderly there are uh, businesses you know there are businesses that are there but because you know the people of color in this community are oppressed and that you know that part's not being said but you know we have to understand that that's, uh, that's an important aspect because they've already been silenced and because they aren't the, because these uh, individuals aren't the ones you know being approached by the police in a negative mindset, being approached by the judiciary system in a negative mindset, they have the ability to say that for me, everything you're saying is untrue because I'm not a person of color because I'm not a person you know I'm not a person who's being oppressed by the system. So I don't really understand. One of the one of the things that I think was really beautiful, uh, and this didn't this didn't happen. Um, you know, within the Black Lives Matter movement itself. This actually happened when I uh, first started working in mental health and uh, I was uh, uh, working at an uh, addiction and treatment center. And uh, one of the staff members uh, was asked to teach um, options to anger, which is, you know, a way to help kids kind of understand the anger cycle and understand how to uh, jump in and intervene in that cycle. Uh, one of the things that she said point blank to these uh, youth after a couple of months was that, hey, how can I help y'all? Because I've never been angry. I've never had something to be angry about. So when I'm teaching this course, I don't know how, I don't know how to connect with you in that way to understand where your anger is coming from. So how do I help you? 
he was able to really analyze that question, really analyze, you know, really analyze um, the options in your course and know that her bubble, her purview didn't include, you know, didn't include that. And, you know, the person who asked that question, the person who asked this question, I think they have to, you know, ask that themselves too. They have to say, you know, does my bubble actually, you know, allow these things to, you know, be visual, be visualized in this community, to be shown so that I have an understanding of where this dialogue is coming from. And the fact that that bubble exists is the very reason why we need these protests to come out there, because that's the only way they can be educated. Very good. I want to pivot to some of the uh, different kinds of questions. Now, thank you all for your detailed, thoughtful answers. Those are very useful. <clears throat> so my next question is, what are black, the next question on the, the come in is, what are black unity's priorities for action? And how can community-based organ, community organizations support those priorities? How can individuals support those priorities? Who would like to go first? Okay, Martin. So, first and foremost, one of the one of the big things that we realize here in um, here in Oregon is that there aren't a lot of Black people, there aren't a lot of people of color in this community. And to be quite honest, there isn't anything there isn't anything about this area that makes it friendly for or, or makes it a, a, an opportunity for a person of color to come into this environment. So, you know, like when we look at, you know, the big the big revenue generators of the community, like the University of Oregon, you know, like Portland, PSU, um, Peace Health, you know, those, you know, those big organizations and things like that, you know, they create, they create opportunity for um, uh, people of color to come in and to really educate themselves, to really, to really grow and make a difference. But you know, when you look at the greater community and when you look at the greater community of Oregon, you step out of those, when you step out of those isolated bubbles and you see what it's actually like in this community, you realize that why would I, you know, take all of this knowledge that I'm building, take all of these, you know, take all of these resources, take everything that I've learned, you know, from you know these helpful institutions and share it to people that don't want to change. And so when you when you understand that, you know, it comes to no surprise that. Uh, you know, all the uh, people of color, you know, when they get their degree or when they, you know, get what they came here to get, they leave and go back to the communities that want to be able to change, that want to have this difference. So one of the first uh, priorities of action that we want to do is we want to make sure that this community is receptive to this message and is receptive to people of color. The only way that you can really do that at this time is to create multicultural centers where people feel like they can connect with these people, where people feel like they can build a community, where people feel like they can, um, where people feel like if uh, they want to learn how to uh, run a business and they want to be a you know a black owned business, uh, a black run business owner, they have this network of support that they can come up to to uh, to talk to. And I think individuals who want to support these priorities. The best way that they can, you know, the best way that they can support those priorities is by talking to the people of color in their, you know, talking to those individuals within their community and asking them, hey, how can I support, you know, you bringing, you bringing your extended family up here? What are some of the things that they want to see, you know, in this community so that they can call it home to create a truly diverse environment uh, here in Oregon where we can have that dialogue, where we can have equitable change as a, uh, you know, as community-based organizations and as C officials, you know, what uh, what systems can we put in place 
to foster relationships? What systems can we put in place to do that? You know, um, if we look down, you know, in these, uh, in the communities of color in uh, LA, in um, uh, Riverside, uh, down in California, where I'm from, uh, they've already established these centers. They've already established these, uh, you know, multicultural centers, and they've already uh, started to build that equitable change that needs to happen down there. And, you know, what's happened as a result is, you know, they become these, you know, havens of multicultural diversity, havens of, you know, um, uh, multiracial leadership and havens of true, you know, just true change. Very good. Um, another question here says, as a Springfield resident, I would like to know if there are specific actions our city can take to improve quality of life for our Black African American neighbors, uh, specific issues Black Unity wants to raise with the Springfield City Council leadership. Um, Kanaya, would you like to start? I'm gonna let Morgan start. He has something Morgan. to say. Morgan. Um. I think a big thing that they could do is um, have create places like community centers for that are safe places for people of color. Because as anyone in the area knows, there aren't a lot of community centers in general, but not, especially not places that cater towards people of color, places that actually have um, special places for children of Muslim faith to actually be able to do their prayers. Because that they said, because as someone who worked at the African-American Cultural Center at the University of Arizona, that was a problem that we had is we didn't have a safe place for Muslim students to actually come and be able to pray because they have such um, strict pray, um, prayer rituals. And situations like that that actually foster and let people of color know that their culture is accepted and not only accepted, but also offered opportunities to flourish and um, thrive in the Springfield area. Because I know there's a lot of people of color who are live in the Springfield area and don't feel comfortable um, proudly showing off their heritage or proudly showing off their culture because they know they can, they'll be subject for harassment or um, having possibly having people threaten them in different situations. And it's um, very frustrating for me personally, as someone who lived in the Thurston area for the first five years of my life, kind of understanding what it's like to be in a situation like that, watching, like seeing how my father dressed in certain situations, be going to certain areas of Springfield, just based on what area it was. And so if we can build a place like a cultural center where we can have people of color can come and openly um, and proudly be their true selves and tout their heritage. I think that'd be a great big step forward for the city of Springfield and many of the leaders to actually build a relationship with the people of color in that area. Okay, thank you, Morgan. Can I, you, you wanna say something? Yeah, okay, so I think the biggest part is by, it starts with a smile, honestly. I think it starts with, you see a person of color, so many times we wear our Black Lives Matter mask, we go out there, we go out there and people see us and they give us this nasty look, like they smell something really gross. Every time, it doesn't matter if they know you. It starts with a smile. I feel like the next thing is um, educate. So educate your kids, educate your friends' kids, educate your cousins, educate all of the youth. Cause right now the only thing that's gonna make a change is if we make sure that we're not raising racist children. We cannot raise racist children. And so if it starts with, oh, you see someone mistreating a person of color, you go up and you go and educate them. That's not how you treat somebody. That's not the way to deal with anybody, especially right now. They're really oppressed. They might be scared to be here. They're going through a lot. And check your friends. Check your friends, check your family, and make sure that they know that that's not appropriate. Also, make sure that the teachers that are in Thurston High School, 
in Springfield High School and all of the elementary schools aren't letting kids say the N-word, aren't letting people call some, somebody out of their name because they're a person of color. Make sure that they are, are on that and correcting that and punishing that and make sure that it's not just a little thing that happens casually because that's exactly why we're enabling racist people in this state is because no one is calling them out. No authority figure is calling them out and they're sitting there getting praised for it by their friends. So. All right. Thank you. Very good. Uh, Tyson, you had your, Tyshawn, I'm sorry, you had your hand up. That's literally what I was going to bring up. Um, what Kanai was talking about, like I'm really big on education. And one thing that has to start is normalizing the teaching of like black history. Like, honestly, if it was up to me, I think that these history textbooks need to be burned and um, because they are very outdated and they don't teach the right side of history. Um, um, one thing that uh, needs to be normalized is like she said, holding kids accountable for speaking to these kids um, and speaking to children in a way that is respectable. So like kids calling like other uh, kids of color, like the N word or just saying it to other white people and they normalize it. Like it's just the normal thing to do. These kids aren't getting in trouble. Um, that needs to be fixed. That needs to be, that needs to be uh, start with the teachers uh, being held accountable, not letting this happen. The principals not, uh, not letting this happen and normalizing uh, black culture, normalizing um, other culture for uh, people of color. Like that needs to be normalized because a lot of these kids, um, they grow up in a household where they're not taught their culture very often and they uh, don't feel comfortable with this culture at school. So it starts with like these after school programs as well as like these community centers, but also in school, feeling like it's okay for you to wear your hair natural. But, like it's okay for you to come to school dressed um, in your culture, like how you dress, you know what I mean? Feeling like it's okay for those things, normalizing those things because a lot of kids, um, for lack of better words, um, you know, that are black act white um, in, the, in those places because that's all they know, that's all they've been taught. Um, you know what I mean? So having a, a safe space for these kids to be able to go where they know their culture is going to be, um, is going to thrive at. They know they're going to learn things about themselves, um, about their body, about, you know what I mean? Just like um, normalizing that, like especially in the schools, like having more black sports coaches, more black teachers, like these things have to be normalized in these places because it's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And that's what's going to create the changes, being uncomfortable. You're never going to make any change if you're always comfortable. Um, and it's, and it's super hard. It's really hard. Like I work with kids a lot. Like I was in, I'm in the BSU and I've got to talk with a lot of these kids at these summits and they feel, they just feel like they have nowhere to turn. You know what I mean? Their parents were raised here. So their parents are the exact same way that they're growing up. So they don't know, they don't know any better. They don't know how to help them. And so it's just this problem with uh, this education system that is teaching these kids that it's okay to be racist. It's okay to, uh, to uh, spew microaggressions at your friends. And and it's not these kids' fault. It's literally, it's the teachers, it's the parents. And, and it may not be their fault either because maybe they don't know as well. Like that, that's literally the main problem is like what one thing that Black Unity um, is working towards and one thing that we uh, hope to accomplish is being able to work in these schools and start like these after-school programs and stuff where we can start educating the teachers as well as the students because it starts with, it starts with them as well, teaching these kids. Um, because this has been happening here for way too long is people not being um, comfortable in their culture because they feel like there's only one culture here. And if they don't um, represent that culture, they will have no friends. They'll be outcasted. So, yeah. I'd like to pit. Okay, bro, quick, Martin. Oh, I'll just address uh, the last part because I think that uh, everybody hit um, everything, you know, the nail on the head with everything that they just said on education and whatnot. The last, the last big piece that we uh, need to address within the community is that equity piece 
And I, I think, um, you know, another thing that we have to bring in, not only speak on this briefly, because I believe there's a question specifically about it, uh, you know, the, uh, the medical piece and that, uh, that um, higher, uh, higher education piece as well, you know, because when we when we're looking to this community and we're uh, we're hearing that you know these uh, individuals have no one to turn to to uh, to help them express themselves to help them understand who they are where they you know where they come from their social identity. The fact of the matter is that in both Eugene and you know in both Eugene and Springfield, the people that these folks have to turn to in these positions of power to you know understand what they can do to get ahead are allies no, no not even allies they're, just, they're white people you know like even when even when a person of color is elected you know we saw this with president obama and we see this with the local elected officials in our community as well even when we are you know placed in these uh, positions of power we're seen as a token of like oh this person's been placed here y'all are good you got to where you needed to go this thing is done so we can move on with our lives and we can keep we can continue doing what we're doing but the reality is we don't want to have to turn, you know, when we're looking at a position of power and we're looking to uh, really seek that uh, that mentorship, we shouldn't have to turn to an ally. We shouldn't have to turn to a white person to get that. We should be able to turn to, you know, uh, like the founding families in uh, Eugene, like the Mims, uh, like the Mims family, like the uh, the Washingtons, like the uh, Reynolds families. You know, we should be able to turn to turn to them because they hold these positions of power because they've been in these communities just as long as you know, the, the white folks who have been in this community as well. There needs to be a, a equity on both levels, you know? Okay. So let me ask a different question. I'd like to hear from each one of you. Why is it, I want you to, in your own words, I want you to, to make a statement to any elected official or any community member, any community resident, why is it they don't have to be afraid of you and with the work that you're doing? Morgan or Tyshawn, your hand is up. I'll start with you. Um, one reason they don't have to be afraid um, of us, especially these city officials, is because we are open to having dialogue with these uh, with these officials, and we proved that. And we've also we've also have proved time and time again that Black unity is about the peaceful protests, and um, there is there's evidence to back that up. And we have a list of demands. We have a mission statement to show what we are about. And um, if you don't know what we are about at this point, then that's just because you're not listening. And that's the very problem with this is people not listening to our message. And um, so like, if you're afraid of us, it's because you're just watching the news and what's happening in other places. And you're watching, you're only paying attention when stuff is getting broken. You're not paying attention to the message, the messages that we're actually trying to speak um, that are peaceful and that are about actual change and realistic uh, goals to set for this community. So if you're only paying attention to when, when the bad stuff is happening, um, then that just means you're just not uh, here for actual change. Um, you're only here when um, th you feel like things are going bad. And is that the same message you would give to the residents and or neighborhoods that you enter into? Yeah, 100%. Like people only come out when um, they feel like um, it's bad stuff about to happen or um, something's about to get broken. And that's like the major issue. Come out when we're being educational. Come out when we're trying to teach you something. Come out when we're trying to educate you and talk to you and have actual dialogue. That's why we have these open forums because we don't believe in canceling anybody who doesn't believe in the same stuff we believe in. We believe in educating those people and telling them, here's why we disagree with you. And at the end of the day, if we agree to disagree, at least they heard us and they can understand now where we're coming from. Uh, or maybe they don't. 
You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, they heard our message and they understand that we're not violent and we're not coming there to uh, break down your town. So if you still believe that, that's because you are choosing to believe that. Thank you. Thank you. Kanaya? So he's, he, I think he hit it on the mark. Um, I think one way to not be afraid of us is to actually go to a protest, attend, actually bring your body, bring your friends, bring your family, go out there. And if, if it's, um, if it is peaceful, if you're enjoying it, then you can go tell other people that we're not people to be afraid of. And I'm a little thrown off that anyone would be afraid of us. It seems kind of racist to think like, why would they be afraid of us? Like that question just kind of set me off. Like afraid a bunch of black people out there saying, treat me right. I want to be equal to you should not trigger anybody to be afraid of us. It should be like, dang, there's something wrong and we should help. Like it shouldn't be fear. So turn that fear into interest and turn that interest into something that you can use to help others. You have a voice. So I know I'm, I'm getting a little off topic, but I just feel like we, we've expressed ourselves so many times and said that we're peaceful and told everyone to come join us. We tell you to get off your phones, get out of your house, come join us. And they'll realize once they actually do that we're, we're peaceful people. Just so you know, uh, all of you know, that question is my, my question because when I got out of the Army in 1995 and I came to this community, uh, people were afraid of me. And so I wanted you to say in your own words why people don't have to be afraid of you. Uh, Martin? So, you know, I think it's really helpful that you just said that because I was actually going to address two topics on, two topics on this. Because... There's a group of people that should be afraid, and there's a group of people that shouldn't be afraid. The group of people that shouldn't be afraid are these counselors, are you know the general population, the members of the community. Because at the end of the day, I I'll, I'll say this, and I can say this to anyone, you know, point blank. Racism has been politicized. Black lives have been politicized. This entire movement has been politicized. It's become a political issue when the reality is it needs to be, that focus needs to be shifted from political to a humanitarian issue. Why are humans being treated differently from one another? Why are humans being treated one, why, are, why is this group of humans being treated one way while this group of humans is treated the other way? And you know, as a city, as a counselor, as a person in that position of, you know, as an elected official in that position of power, you should feel honored to be able to be a part of that discussion to you know, be able to better your community, to be able to better the people's lives in your community. So, you know, this is, a, you know, it's humanitarian. And, you know, just like you said, you know, when you came here in 1995, people were afraid of you. There's a, there is a group of people that does need to be afraid. And that's the group of people who hold the money, who are, you know, that, that group of people who are so stuck in their old ways that they cannot see us as anything other than less than human, that cannot see us you know, that from anything less than three fits, because those are the people who are creating, you know, who are creating the legislation to allow this to happen. Those are the people who are funding the legislation to allow, you know, to create that opportunity. And when push comes to shove, you know, when lawsuits are done and when, you know, this is, you know, when this humanitarian movement can finally come to a place where everyone's treated as humans, somebody is going to have to pay. Somebody is going to be held accountable. You know, back in the 2008 uh, economic crisis, the people who uh, created that uh, situation were not held accountable. But here in this humanitarian movement, just like they did, you know, in uh, Germany, when they uh, when they finally uh, created this uh, the memorial for the Jews to, uh, 
you know, honor, you know, what had happened in this, uh, you know, the struggles that they faced, the genocide that they were a part of, the same thing is going to happen to, you know, the folks that are, you know, the Black Lives and the, uh, the folks in the BIPOC community who have experienced this as well. And when it comes time for somebody to pay, when it comes time for somebody to, you know, own up and say, I was wrong on this, that's going to come from those people of power who, who have perpetuated the system. And it's not necessarily the city councilors. It's the people who have that financial blue. Thank they you. Should be Thank you. Morgan? As someone who was born in the area, um, I'm from here. I don't want to destroy everything around me. I mean, my grandparents live out here. My grew up around here. I have no animosity towards Springfield and the regular citizens. Um, but Martin is correct. The people with the money should be afraid because we believe that we should be treated equally. And right now the money is not distributed, distributed equally amongst um, people of color. And we, and that's one of the big things we are pushing for as Black Unity is to try and make sure that people of color get that equal piece of the pie. And um, it's because we see this country and they, we see these people who come to our protest and wave these flags in our face and say, this, this, this represents my rights, these represents my freedom. And all we're trying to do with our movement is to say, hey, I'm trying to manifest my own destiny. And I'm, if I remember correctly, that's very important to the um, founding of America was being able to manifest your own destiny. And um, I even told my grandfather about this, and he thinks it's ridiculous when the Proud Boys come and wave a flag in our face and say what they're doing is okay because they have an American flag and they're representing their right to be, fr to be free. And my grandpa was like, shoot, you're an American. Why don't you bring an American flag? You're an American too. And so just like one thing I would want to make sure everyone understands is we're all Americans. We want to live in a big, happy America as well. But unfortunately, because of the way um, things have been politicized and the way that the system has been created in this country, um, a lot of Americans have these rose-colored glasses that make give them the illusion that, that it is truly a equal opportunity for everyone in America. And unfortunately, it's truly not. And unfortunately, it's, we have to pull the, wool, pull the wool back from some people's eyes and let them see what, really, what America is really um, doing. Very good, thank you. Uh, can I, I'd like to start with you, <clears throat> this next question. If you could sit down at the table with the counter protesters, what would you like them to know about you? What would you like them to know about why you're doing what you're doing with Black Unity? That's such a crazy question because that's me and Ty specifically, I guess. Always, that, that's we love doing that. We love sitting with the counter protesters and talking to them because they need to understand and realize that we're people that are nice and articulate and have jobs. And it, it's just crazy because um, we talk to them so much. So when you ask that, I'm like, I want to talk about everything. Like, I, I, I want to have endless conversations. I want them to know that, like, we, we believe all lives matter too, <laughs> you know? We're like, we believe all lives matter, because but what we believe that Black lives matter as well. And that's a lot of people don't believe that. So that's such a, I have so, I'm like lost for words because there's so much to talk about and there's so little time. But I think that one thing they need to understand is that um, they should not be afraid of change. They fear that, that the white race is going to be exterminated but they don't think about the fact that that opens up doors for everyone to mix together and to have a world that's 
that's truly um, diverse. And that's exciting. That's something to celebrate. That's not something to fear. That's something to be like, oh, shoot, like all lives do matter, you know? <laughs> so I just feel like uh, I can't even answer. That. There's so much to it. But yeah, I think we should we should be talking more with them. Very good. Thank you. Tayshawn? Um, I think for me, I would ask them probably, um, like when they come out here with these flags and stuff like that and sing the national anthem um, and then claim they're not racist, you know what I mean? Um, why are, to me, I just would ask them, like, why are the racist things that happen in America um, not make you angry when you say you're not racist? Like, that's probably like my biggest thing. Like things like the, like people get mad, like when people kneel for the national anthem, but then I'm like, well, there's a third part of the national anthem that is very racist um, and things like that. It's like, if you're really about all lives mattering, um, why aren't these racist things that are happening and these racist, uh, racial injustices that are happening um, in America make you um, angry if you're truly not racist? Um, so that's one thing that like, I would want to know like from them. And um, also like just ask them, like, do you understand why, um, why we are marching and if not, uh, do you want to know why we are marching and why the flag is triggering and why the national anthem is triggering? Like, are you willing to really learn and uh, try to understand why we are doing the things we do? Because if you're not, but you're claiming that all lives matter, then you're contradicting your um, you're contradicting your words. So that's uh, okay. Thank you. Very good, uh, Martin. Yeah, I think you know. One, one of the big things that I, I want these folks who are um, at, at the table to understand is that, hey, I work, you know, I've spent a lot of time in my community working with the youth. And what I've, what I've known and what I've known to be true in this community is that, you know, a lot of these youth are, you know, the, the sons and daughters and, uh, you know, uh, individuals of, you know, these, of these All Life Matter folks, of these folks. And they're trying to learn what their place is in the world, you know, how they fit in, how, you know, how they can interact with their friends, you know, because when you're growing up, uh, a lot of what you're, you know, a lot of the way you respond to folks isn't, you know, something that's meant to be malicious. It's just a social experiment to learn what's right from wrong. And, you know, when I'm sitting at this table, uh, you know, talking to, you know, talking to the adults, I want them to, you know, remember that like, hey, I'm a community educator. I work with your kids. I want to make sure that your kids are safe, but I also want to make sure that, you know, when I have kids, my kids are safe too. And I'm going to educate your kids on that. I'm going to always make sure that, you know, uh, those folks, in, you know, the, the, the uh, younger generation in this community understands that, you know, they're people and everyone's equal, you know, growing up. And that's something that they're going to be, you know, that's something that they're going to bring into the community when they become our age, you know, when they graduate from college, when they start to, you know, take their first steps into uh, American society and, you know, create change however they see. So when I'm sitting in this community, uh, when I'm sitting at this table, I want these folks to understand that I'm going to keep your kids safe. So I need you to just talk to me and tell me why you feel unsafe so I can help you understand where we're coming from. Very good, thank you. Morgan? Uh, I don't have much to add because I think the three of them did a perfect job of really hitting everything that I would like to, I would like to hit. But um, I would also just like to make, let them understand that I don't blame them for not being educated. 
it's not their fault. It's very similar to the situation um, that happened in South Africa during apartheid, where um, Nelson Mandela said that the people within the system are vict are just as much victims of the system as the people who are being oppressed because it's being they've been brainwashed since birth to think a certain way, and when you come and you say and you tell them and you and it's not and it's not their fault that they react this way because you're being you're you're telling them that something that they've been told is the this, this is how things are this is how things are worked and when you tell them that this is actually incorrect it shakes someone to their core and you're just you're destroying their core values in front of them and it's very hard for some pe for a lot of people to handle and any rational person who gets told that their core values are incorrect is going to is going to sometimes react irrationally or very brashly and so being able to sit down and have a conversation with these people and be like hey i understand it can't like i understand where you might be coming from this has been like we can understand it because i mean i know personally that i thought i had a very thorough understanding of how racism worked in this country and then something happened and from and trayvon martin was killed and i realized oh no it's not racism isn't dead there's still people are still killing 14 year old black boys and that situation was so scarring to this whole nation that I, me and my mother got into a fight when I was 15 over me wearing a hoodie when I went out on a walk because I have insomnia. I, don't, I can't sleep very much at night. The best way for me to calm down is to take a walk at night. And my mom didn't feel comfortable with me being a 15 year old black man wearing a hoodie. And knowing that there are people like many of these counter protesters who when they see a black person in a hoodie, they get scared because of a lot of the brainwashing that has been done by the media to make them perceive um, people of color as violent or monsters and different things. And it's another part of the situation that we need to address as a whole, but is this something that's outside of BU, um, Black Unity's scope at this moment, but is, to, is the fact that a lot of American media is brainwashing a lot of these people to think a certain way, and it's not really their fault, they're just victims of circumstance. Thank you, Kaishan. Just a quick add on that. Another thing that I would ask is um, if you guys know that um, this police system that um, that stands with uh, systemic racism um, is oppressing people of color, if you guys know that, then why are you trying to protect it so much? And honestly, I would feel like the answer to that question uh, would be because um, it's a privilege to feel safe by the police. Like um, that is very much a privilege and they don't want to give up that privilege of this them feeling safe uh when the uh, when the police are called like for me personally like a lot of situations i don't feel like i should call the police because i'm like they're not gonna do anything um you know what i mean so um that that's a privilege that um that a lot of people um people of course specifically don't get to feel because they don't feel like um that police system is there to help them and um also like another thing off of what morgan was saying um God, I forgot it. But yeah, I forgot it. Very good, thank you. Uh, Kanaya, you're the only woman on this leadership panel tonight. You're a BIPOC woman. What are what what are some things you'd like to say to the community at large about issues that are important to you, and that that if you could say anything educational and helpful and useful, what might some of those uh, statements be? Well, for one, do not silence Black women. Stop silencing black women. We're not aggressive, we're passionate. We're not aggressive, we're passionate. For the 15th time, <laughs> that's one thing, is people have this view of black women, like we're always mad, we're always angry. But then again, the world puts us as a little tiny, a little tiny speck on the bottom of the totem pole. 
and then expects us to be happy and, and to not be mad. But when we do express ourselves, we're shut down. So I feel like I just, I would love to have the community understand that we need love too. <laughs> we need love. So there's, there's so much, but that's just, that's one of the biggest things right now is that show black women some love, please. <laughs> Very good. Uh, if you were in a room full of city leaders, citizens, residents, community members, and you were introducing yourself for the first time regarding this work that you're doing with Black Unity, how would you like to introduce yourself so that people would understand the nature and the scope of your work and who you are individually and personally? Uh, Martin, I'll start with you. So I guess uh, it's, it's kind of funny that you asked that question because like we all have specific roles within, um, within our organization, within BU that we do, but we're all very passionate individuals. So like, we like to, you know, we like to make sure that we're uplifting each other in every possible way. And so we, you know, I could come in and I could tell you my individual role in BU, but I feel like if I told you my individual role, that it creates a, it creates a uh, this precedence where, oh, I want to talk to this person more than I want to talk to that person, when that's not what I want to happen. That's not what I, you know, that's not how I want uh, people to see this. And so whenever I come into a room and I'm introducing uh, myself as a part of, you know, as part of the Black Unity uh, Movement and a part of the Black uh, Lives Matter Movement, I just say that I'm one of the organizers. I don't go into the specifics. You don't need to know what I do specifically. You just need to know that I'm one of the, I'm one of many who have a voice in this community who wants to make sure that everyone else's voices are heard. Very good. Morgan? Um, very similar to what Martin says, said, because when we, when we came together to start this organization, we, we wanted to make sure that everyone understood that leadership was going to be lateral. There's not one person who has more say of any, than anyone else. All of our meetings are done democratically. There's not a single thing that is done without everyone being in, knowing, understanding what's going on and everyone getting a vote or a say on everything. And we make sure that before, and I don't think we've ever had a non-unanimous vote because if, there is, if it's not unanimous, we end up stopping and making sure that everyone understands what's going on. And then once everyone under, actually understands what we're trying to accomplish, it then becomes a unanimous vote immediately after that. And I think that's one of the greatest strengths of our organization is that there is no one true leader. But if I were to describe myself, I would just say um, community um, advocate and um, community organizer. And because I think that's really what encompasses all everyone who's a part of the BU leadership is that we come and we're advocates for the community and we're also advocates um, and we're and we also are organizing the community into certain events. Very good. Thank you. Tyshawn? Um, for me, probably just like the same thing like what Martin said, basically, like uh, when I come in the room, I just say like I'm an activist, organizer for Black Unity. Um, I do do a lot of educational stuff, so um, I do like to talk to the All Lives Matter people and uh, the racist people if they are racist and uh, stuff like that. So that's like pretty much like an educator. Um, I, I do like to travel around and um, I'm a protester as well. You know what I mean? I, I really do like to be in the streets. I like to protest. I like um, to, to be for people to hear me and uh, for us to be around. And I feel like this message that um, like on a personal note, like that I personally have to tell people, I feel like is important for people to hear. Uh, hear. 
And uh, you know what I mean? I've been wanting to be an activist for my whole entire life. And this has been like a good opportunity to really um, dive into that, like as much as I've wanted to and uh, see like the activists that have came before me that I look up to, um, how they've done it, how I can do it better, how I can do it like them. And so like uh, getting to be like in the streets and protesting like in these different places and uh, being, being an educator and really um, educating myself on uh, things that I want to be able to teach because I can't be an activist and tell people that I'm an activist or educator if I if I don't know um, what I'm talking about if I don't know what I'm speaking to people so just like um, you know an organizer an activist um, a student basketball player um, and, and an educator very good thank you Kanaya so I want to start by saying each one of these men right here in this group have taught me so much. Like I'm here to learn, to be honest. I'm like, I've learned so much from, from the other BU leaders and stuff, from the men, from the women, from everybody of all different colors and stuff. And that's something that I take very seriously. I like, I want to educate myself too. So when I do speak, I'm speaking correctly to other people about this. Um, but one thing that I've always been about is I, I don't like seeing people bullied practically. Like I don't like seeing, people of color specifically because that has been the target it seems throughout our whole life it's been people of color so I've always been someone that speaks up I don't like to sit there and be quiet I think it's really dumb and I use like it's it's not it's not what you should be doing so I feel like my role in this is I want to I want to give you the insight of what me as a black woman has been through and what other people don't express and stuff like that and I want to try to use my words to help other people express their experiences and by gaining all that information like Tyshawn said we can use that for the people that don't understand like the all lives matter and we can tell them all our experiences so maybe they will grasp on to like what it's truly like to be um, a minority and understand that better um, but I feel like we shouldn't be silent until there's peace so I feel like I'm just here I'm just here until we can actually make a change and then once we actually make a change, we can keep going to create the universe, the, the universe of the world that we want to see, you know? I have one final question. We've got about five minutes left. If you could keep your answers to about 60 seconds or less if possible. You're in the room with the governor and her staff, the Oregon Senate and the Oregon House of Representatives. What would you ask them to do for the movement? And I'll start with you, uh, Kanaya. I'd ask them to use their voice. I, I know I keep going back to that, but I would ask them to listen. I would ask them to understand. I would ask them um, to, to really fully embrace themselves in, in the culture, in all different cultures, not just us. There's, there's kids in cages right now. There's like, there's other things going on that are, it's so much bigger than just this little topic. And I feel like what people are not doing is listening. So I would ask them, maybe take a second and educate yourself like Taishan was saying, because I feel like that, that goes with this answer as well. Very good, thank you, Taishan. Um, if I was in the room with them, I would 100%, I would tell them, look at the numbers, uh, look at the stats, and we see that this world, um, the city, the state is corrupt, uh, the police is corrupt, um, the judicial system is corrupt. Like we see a lot of these things being corrupt and people are speaking out on them. And now we need you guys to take action. Like there's, a, there's been a lot of talk like, oh yeah, like this is in the works or, oh yeah, we see that this is a problem. We see that this is a problem, but there's not enough action that's being taken. Like 
uh, we've been talking about these problems for a long, long time, many, many years, people before us, you know, I mean, have talked about these problems and they're still problems to this day. And they're the people that have the power to change those things. And now it's, uh, we're past the point to where we're doing all this talking. Um, it's enough. We're done with the talking. We need action now. Very good. Morgan? I know um, I speak for a lot of people when I say that Black unity is no longer standing for um, broken promises by politicians. If you say you're an ally and you're gonna and you're gonna do things to help that are truly being allied and helping start policies and programs to actually help people of color, and it doesn't happen, we're not voting for you again. We're going to openly say we're going to openly campaign against you and say this person said these things were going to happen to help people of color and they did not do that. Because personally, to me, as someone whose friend is studying to become a politician. When you start, um, when you start going for okay, I'm now going to try and win my next election before you before the campaign season has even started. It shows me that you've given up on whatever anything you tried to do during your term, that you've given up on whatever you're trying to do, and you're trying to sell yourself out for voters. And everyone knows if you really want to get something done as a politician, you can't. You're not going to get reelected. Everybody knows that. If you want to actually get something done, you have to swallow the fact that you're not going to get reelected. And we need more politicians who care more about policies and getting things done than actually getting reelected and making your hundreds of thousands of dollars that you get as a senator or representative and the crazy amount of money that you get for giving speeches after you're done and blah, 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 blah. All that money that's involved in politics is ridiculous. And the biggest thing that I would like to push for is to actually have a work on campaign finance reform. It's very important to, to get these campaign finance reforms um, figured out along with gerrymandering so we can stop having um, political parties that are that are purposely trying to um, prevent people of color from voting and accurately using their voice. Excuse my grandma. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Martin? Yeah, so I think there's really there's really only two things that I would say, you know, knowing, uh, every, you know, hearing everything that my colleagues said, you know, I agree with them 100%. There are two things that just need to be said. One, if you are in this position of power, and you see what's going on in this movement. You know, you see this rise of a hate group that's coming to, you know, try and squash the individuals of the movement, to try and kill the individuals who are, you know, uh, who are camp camping the biggest change. You, as a public official, have to take a stand against that. You have to, uh, you have to decry um, the violence that's coming from these extremists, especially these extremists who, you know, come from the Proud Boys, who come from, you know, these terrorist networks that are allowed to be, that are allowed to um, perpetuate in the system. You just have to say no to that and you have to, you know, actively create uh, legislation that prevents that from happening. The second thing that I would say is at the end of the day, you know, by and large, a lot of the legislation that's written into law uh, it, cre it creates opportunities for one way, but it can also create opportunities for another way. You know, there are two different paths, but the fact is that, you know, it's, it's not, you know, the legislation is what empowers people, but it's their mindset that really is what um, call, you know, create, gives them the uh, call to create that action to do that, you know? And so it's like, wow, I feel like, um, you know, this community is a dumb community. So I'm gonna use, you know, what I have in power in this legislation to say, uh, you know, this community is not worth living in. We can't have that happen anymore. That's not something that's okay. And that's something that needs to change. And you have to look at that. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us tonight, Martin, Kanaya, Taishan, 
and Morgan, I have found all four of them to be very reasonable, intelligent, articulate leaders of the BIPOC community of the Black Unity Movement. I want to say to you, Martin and, and uh, Kanaya, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you randomly when we bumped into each other uh, the other last week. Martin? Martin. So real quick, real quick. Uh, it wasn't actually Kanaya that you bumped into. It was oh. me, uh, myself and Claire. We were doing some organizing for the Pride event that we were, um, well, that we're hosting tomorrow. Well, thank you. Well, Claire, uh, we're going to give you an honorable mention. And thank you because the both of you were very, uh, very warm and very open and you were willing to speak. And that was the message that I was sharing with others, that your willingness to share your philosophy and wanting to connect and wanting to engage and that's what I walked away from in that moment in time. So I was very excited. And to all those that have listened, to all those that will watch this, I'm asking you as a community leader in this city of Springfield to listen to their answers, to listen to their heart, to listen to their words. We all need to come together to have these crucial conversations that we can move forward together as a community because we are all in this world together, whether we like it or not. And it's important that we find ways to help each other get across to the other side of the things that we're facing uh, as, as just as people. And so Morgan, Taishan, Kania, um, Kanaya, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, so sorry. And Martin, I thank you tonight for your time. I thank you for your openness. I thank you for your generosity. And I just look forward to having future conversations with all of you once again. Again, the Springfield City Club wants to entertain your leadership team as a program. And we're looking forward to uh, helping uh, increase forums and increase dialogue and uh, increase opportunities for your voices and your message to be heard. And so thank you all for, uh, this evening and I appreciate your time. All right, have a good night. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.